Okay, this morning is Sunday. It's June 8th. It is 2008. Our message this morning is called Takum or Takum Olam. It's a Hebrew word, and uh, I put it in your bulletin so that you could see how it's spelled phonetically and see some interesting things about it. But it means to repair or repairing the world. Another way to say it is perfecting the world. This is a really interesting thing because it's existed in Judaism, the rabbis say, all the way back to Joshua. I honestly think it goes back well before that, but they, they have a prayer uh, that they pray every day called an Aleinu. And they pray this three times a day, and they say Joshua was the first one to pray it. I'm going to show you in the very beginning of creation part of God's intent for man. As we look at this, I want you to constantly be reflecting about what your life looks like and what the church world that you're accustomed to looks like. So often, the church has painted a picture of the world that says that it's dirty, that it's yucky, and that you just need to get away from it and get free from it. I think that they misunderstand some things in the Scripture. God says six times on six days that the world is good and that everything in it is good. And when he made man, which is usually everybody's chief complaint, right? You don't got a problem with the bunnies and the squirrels and the little puppies. You got a problem with men. God said, very good. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that comes out of the creation or that comes out of a man is good. Certainly it's not. But the original perspective is that it is good. So if you see something that's out of place today, see something that's out of place this week, I want you to consider that it might be your job to repair it. Turn with me to Genesis. You'll be in Genesis 1. There are people with us in Thibodeau today. There are people with us in North Houston, West Houston, Baton Rouge. It's kind of exciting to have an Internet ministry growing, huh? And we have some guests here. I am sure thankful that you're here. Uh, it's special. I believe that the calling of this ministry, I believe what Jesus spoke to us in the beginning, was that he would make us like a magnet that drew the precious metals of the earth to this place, and that it was our job to polish you, to show you what God's called you to be and what you can become. So if you came in here feeling dirty and yucky, and you're worried about how you're viewed by God or how you're viewed by God's people, we need to look into the mirror that is God's Word and see things like He's made you to be Christ's righteousness. He delights in you. Those are good words, and they're not said enough. I was taught that I was just a poor old sinner. I want you to know that's not true. It's not true. That's what I was. What I've become is a saint in God. You can get caught up in all the theology that you want to, but wait a minute, you still sin. You don't understand. I may not have paid off the house yet, but it's been credited to me. I'm living in it. I've got an arrangement with the King of Kings. He's calling me righteous, although I'm not there yet. And I choose to view things that way. Do you think there's enough doom and gloom in the world? you think God could use some people on the planet that have something good to say? The gospel is supposed to be good news, right? And it's supposed to bring great joy. When you see people without great joy, they evidently have not grabbed hold of the good news. Unfortunately, our churches are replete with that. 
Today we're going to look at some ways to be different. And we're going to look at the Hebraic roots of the scripture and how Jesus himself walked in practice. Fair enough? Did anybody take Gabe's advice this week? Uh, Gabe and Charlotte issued a challenge to read Isaiah 61 and read it as the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do this and this and this. Saints, we need to view ourselves as God's ambassadors. When you do that, you'll act like God intends for you to act and you'll see your life as purposeful and having meaning. Are you all in Genesis? In Genesis 1, we'll start in the 28th verse. So God blessed them. Yeah, I'm sorry, pages are still turning. Tell me when you're there. Adam's there, we can move on. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And then he goes on to explain things and says it is very good. Man's original mission, man who is created in the image of God, meaning that you look in some way, you reflect in some way the divine. Our original mission is to multiply ourselves, increase these little reflectors of God's presence all over the earth and subdue it. I don't know about you, but I I never wanted to be subdued. Only a couple times in my life has it happened, but a young man in high school uh, thoroughly gave me a new attitude and look out on life. Uh, In a physical confrontation, he beat me into the dust of the earth, and I was very well subdued. Subdued, it implies resistance. You usually use the the phrase as policemen chasing a criminal and they had to subdue them. And God tells man to subdue the earth. The other word there, fill the earth. The King James, if you're reading from that, I think Miss Betty was reading from it, said, replenish the earth. It has to do with filling the earth with something that is good and restraining that which is bad. Now, many times in our theology, the Western world has gone wrong. And one of the reasons that we've gone wrong is we thought that the world got bad when man was on it and man had made a mistake. Right? You ever heard that? Of course you have. That's what's taught everywhere. Why is there a tree of knowledge of good and evil before human being since? Also, on what day was darkness created? Darkness throughout the Bible is indicative not just of the absence of light, but something more malevolent than that. There was a problem on the earth, and God introduced man into the earth to subdue it. He introduced man into the earth to do something about it. And unfortunately, man didn't do very well with his very first task. By the way, when you look at the commands that are given to Adam, and we're going to move on from this, one of the first things that God ever speaks directly to Adam is, You are free. Says you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but of this tree you must not eat. God is not a God of restriction. The church is a church of restriction, but God is not a God of restriction. You are not a Christian because of the list of things that you do not do. We're followers of Christ because of the things that we do that are like Christ. So if you think holiness is hiding in a cave, wearing a burlap sack, and enjoying nothing, 
then we bought into a lie that was sold to us. And I'll show you how we got it today. But more than talk about the lie, we're all familiar with it. We've lived in it. I want you to see the goodness of the creation that God has for us and what we're supposed to be doing. Is that fair enough? Okay. Jennifer and Michelle and I watched Sham Wow yesterday. That commercial played like nine times in a row. Sham Wow. Yeah. 1999, you can get this amazing chamois. This guy is jumping all over the place. He couldn't be any more excited or enthusiastic about a rag. Saints, it's okay to talk to me this morning. It's okay to be excited. We are talking about the most important things in the universe, and they can have profound effect on your life, and everywhere you go, it's better than ShamWow, and I'm not going to charge you for it. All right, turn with me to Genesis 12. Tukun Olam, repairing the world. Sometimes you hear the same phrase as Tukun Ha Olam, which means like as it's complete, the restoration of the world. Tell me when you're in Genesis 12. Good. See, I'm testing to see whether you'll actually talk to me. I appreciate that. Church was never supposed to be a lecture setting. In the synagogues, in the early days when Jewish believers who had accepted the Messiah came to meet, one would stand up and read. Actually, seven would stand up and read. That's why it was Jesus' turn to read Isaiah 61 one day. The pastor or ruler of the synagogue, his job was to make sure they didn't make a mistake when they were reading. But the congregation brought the message. Boy, what a difference that is. So I've asked several of you to speak in the next few Wednesdays, and uh, I'll be excited to see what you have. Have you all enjoyed the last couple Wednesdays? My son testified. He, he gave a great testimony. He said, Dad, I enjoy when they preach more than when you preach. I said, thank you, son. All right, in Genesis 12, the Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Great nation. God took one man and said, I'm going to build you into something that is a great nation. Now it's funny, Abram's name means exalted father, but what God changes his name to, Abraham, means father of the nation. God's first calling to Abraham says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. My point here is that Adam, before Abraham, was put on the earth to fill it with things that looked like God, to subdue the things that didn't look like God. That was his job, and he fell down on the job. So God takes a man and says, I'm going to make you Abraham, you exalted father. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. In fact, I'm going to make you a great nation because I want to bless the nations of the earth through you. So often Christianity has become so self-centered. That's I don't know any better way to say it. Self-centered. How can I be blessed? What can I do? What What about me? Me, Susie, us, Johnny, me, Susie, Johnny, us four, no more. Whatever we can do to gain something for ourselves. This book, this Hebrew book from the beginning, has to do with you blessing other people. Because the world is in need of repair. It needs gross renovation and God is picking people who will be about that business. 
We'll get into how exactly you do that in a little bit, but I want to first show you some examples of people and nations that God picked for this. He said from Abraham, I'm going to raise up for you a great nation. Because of that, Exodus 19.5, God speaks to His people. And He says, you will be for me a special nation. A nation of priests. Holy, royal priests. Israel had a special calling. They had the same calling that all mankind had, but all mankind had failed at it. They were not interested in repairing the world. They were interested in getting whatever they could out of it at others' expense. That's why God sent the Noahic flood. So he raises up one nation who he instructs specially from his word, who he instructs specially from his law. And he says, look, if you'll act like this, if you'll do these things, Things like caring about a widow and an orphan. You know how many times the law mentions caring for a widow and an orphan? Things like, hey, when an alien passes through your land, remember that you too were an alien. And you leave the corners of your field for them to eat. Things like that. God was interested in raising up a people group that were specially instructed so that they could be about fixing what was wrong with the earth. What kind of things are wrong with the earth? Well, people are selfish. They're greedy, filled with hate and violence. How do you fix something like that? You'd be selfless. You'd be generous. You'd be interested in other people more than yourself. Instead of violence, you lift up the shalom of God. He was raising up a nation to do this. And because of that, the nation began praying three times a day. And one of the prayers I put in your bulletin, I just thought was good, is called the Alenu. It means our duty. The reason I want to show you this is the Jews as a people saw something as their duty. They thought that they were distinctive, set apart by God as different from the rest of the people to be an example for the people. And so Elenu means our duty. And I couldn't put the whole thing in your bulletin just because it was long. But the first half of it that I omitted had to do with them saying, Oh, Lord, you set us apart. You made us different than all of the other nations, and we thank you. And then it goes on to say this. You can read with me, albeit not out, out loud. Our God is truth, and nothing else compares. As it is written in your Torah. Do you hear what they call God's Word? They refer to it as His Torah. So often the church refers backwards and says, The Jews' law. It was never the Jews' law. It was God's. God's righteous decrees. Never was it derived from Moses, derived from a Hammurabi code, or derived from any secular source. God Himself originated it. And you know what the heart of the law is? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor, and your neighbor, and your neighbor as yourself. Watch this. God's law. And you shall know... And you shall know today and take to heart that Adonai is the only God in the heavens above and on the earth below. There is no other. Therefore, we put our hope in you, Adonai, our God, to see the glory of your strength, to remove all idols from the earth, and to completely cut off all false gods to repair the world, your holy empire. Pious Jews today still pray this Three times a day, along with the rest of their siddur, their prayer book. 
they believed that the world was God's empire and that He was busy repairing it and that it was their job to take place, to take part in that. Think about that for a minute. Was Jesus a Jew? You know He was. Name one of the apostles that was not a Jew. You can't do it. That means they prayed this three times a day. The founders of our faith, the people that laid a foundation for what we now call Christianity, saw their job as to repair the world. You ever seen a bumper sticker that talk about escaping the earth? Or a popular movie series that talks about escaping the earth? Or books sold by the millions upon millions that talked about escaping the earth? From the very beginning, man's calling was to repair the earth. Listen to what he goes on to say. Your holy empire. And for all living flesh to call on your name. And for all the wicked of earth to turn to you. They prayed for the wicked of the earth to turn to God. There's not a more persecuted people group on the planet than the Jewish people. Every Christian nation has at one time brutalized the Jewish people. The reason most of us don't know that and we're not familiar with it is imagine that it was not emphasized in our history books. But it is a historical fact. And yet they pray every day for the wicked people of the world. And may all the world's inhabitants recognize and know that to you every knee must bend and every tongue must swear loyalty. Before you, Adonai, our God, may all bow down and give honor to your precious name. And may all take upon themselves the yoke of your rule. And may your reign over them soon. And then he goes on to talk about be fulfilled. The yoke of your rule. Do you remember when Jesus offered his yoke to us? All you who are heavy laden and wearied, take my yoke upon you. Jesus' yoke is the same yoke they're praying about there. It is an easy and a light thing to walk in the rule of God. You know what's not an easy and light thing? To walk against it because the world is decaying and we're put here to repair it. The reason many people have no sense of purpose in life, the reason that I had no sense of purpose in life, was we were going against what God put man on the planet for. This shows up in all kinds of interesting ways. The Jews saw it as their duty. But even in today's modern political climate in this country, is there not lots of people very fascinated with ways to protect the environment, the world? In fact, a little ivory-billed woodpecker in the southern states that has not existed since the 40s, somebody thought they caught a picture of. It's a little bit like looking at a picture of the Loch Ness Monster or a Bigfoot. It's kind of a blurry image in the distance. And they've been searching with federal funds for four years to find this. And in the meantime, because it's an endangered species, a $350 million expenditure has been written off that would provide water to all the farmers in this southern state. Mankind has it in us to want to repair what's broken in the creation. But when we don't have God's yoke upon us, His rule, we don't have a first clue how to do it. Everything that we do makes things worse. We'll try to save a minnow at the expense of a human being. See, our our judgments are not quite right. We'll get into that more in a minute. But it's bound up in our heart to want to fix what is broken. Some of you in here have nursing backgrounds. 
And I'm very, very thankful. We'll use Angie as an example. Very thankful for Angie's nursing background and that God has given her a good husband. But I have watched nurses marry men they thought they could fix because God put in their heart the desire to fix what was wrong. And that's why they chose a vocation that helped fix people who were broken. And unfortunately, some that I've known married men that were broken and it broke both of them. But all of this has to do with an innate desire in mankind. And nobody had that more strongly than Israel. Uh, turn with me to First Kings. We'll start moving towards the New Testament. Are you all asleep? No? <laughs> Matthew and I at 2 o'clock in the morning were discussing the more important things in life. And I thought it was such a good idea until the alarm went off this morning. And... Uh, and I realize not all of my desires are right. First Kings, we're going to be in the 8th chapter. 8th chapter and 52nd verse. This nation of holy and royal priests raised up for themselves monarchs and kings. And one of their monarchs, you wouldn't recognize his Hebrew name. His Hebrew name is Shlomo. <laughs> that doesn't sound like somebody's very bright, does it? You know, would you name your kid who you wanted everybody to see as very intelligent? Shlomo. And yet, Shlomo is the name of the wisest king that has ever lived. We know him as Solomon. Solomon, King Shlomo. So, uh, I don't know, I just like to say that. Would you all like to say it with me? Shlomo. Don't you feel better? That put a smile on your face already. That made the world a little better starting in this room. All right, in Kings 8, we're going to start reading in the 52nd verse, if I can find it in my Bible. These numbers get smaller every year. All right. May your eyes be open to your servant's plea and to the plea of your people Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you. For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared through your servant Moses when you, O sovereign Lord, brought our fathers out of Egypt. There was a divine awareness upon this entire nation that they had been selected out of all the people on the earth to reconstitute what man was originally put on the earth to do. Whole world going astray, but I'm going to pick this people group, specially instruct them so that the whole world can be instructed by them. And if you think Israel failed, look down at that book you have in your hands, and it did not come to you from Walmart, although that's where you may have bought it. It came to you from Hebrew prophets and apostles and a Jewish king. When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out toward heaven. If you've ever been in a church where you're not allowed to do that, spread out your hands towards heaven, I'm sorry, the word clearly portrays it. In fact, it shows up more times than clapping does. Dancing shows up about five times as much as kneeling reverently. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice, saying, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to His people, Israel, just as He promised. Not one word has fallen, I'm sorry, not one word has failed of all the good promises He gave us through His servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as He was with our fathers. May He never leave us nor forsake us. May He turn our hearts to Him and to walk in His ways and to keep the commands. 
decrees, and regulations He gave our fathers. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that He may uphold the cause of His servant and the cause of His people Israel according to each day's need. We're all good so far, right? That's not all that much different than the church prays. You know, Lord, hear me when I pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness to me. Listen to why he said he said all of those things. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. It has been ingrained in the Jewish people since the beginning. That prayer that Elena goes all the way back to Joshua. Now we're after Joshua somewhere a thousand years before Jesus, right around King Shlomo's time, and you hear elements of it in his prayer. We want to do these things, Lord, so that the whole world can take your rule upon them. Because they believed they were put on the earth to repair the earth, to fix the earth. Psalm 33, 8 says, Let the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere Him. The cry of David, the psalmist, was that the world would revere God. Now, we're fine with saying we're going to reach the world for Jesus, right? In fact, I came into the church during a time period where people were putting windows on their church, little things that look like that bulletin back there on the wall, and calling it a 1040 window on a map. Saying we're going to pray for these people that never heard about Jesus so that Jesus will return and we can get out of here. That was the goal. The goal was to pray for these people that never heard about Jesus because if we could reach them, then we could get out of here. I can't think of anything that is more unbiblical than that. And I've participated in it for years, and if it's still part of your heart, it is biblical to reach the lost. It is not biblical to be looking for any chance you can just to get out of the world. And what Jesus were we going to reach them with? Were we going to reach them with the Jesus that is uh, an iconic art? Were we going to reach them with the prosperity Jesus that just wants you rich? What Jesus were we going to reach them with? See, you show up in the jungles of the Congo, right? Say, God wants you rich. Just name it and claim it, brother. Don't you want that drug dealer's Cadillac? Just name it. How well do you think that's going to work for him? And then that begs a question. We use the name Jesus, but are we reaching them with the message of the good news of the kingdom of God? Are we reaching them with some Western fairy tale about a man who wants you to be greedy? How about that? I think that the message that we need to reach people with is derived from our lives. The world's broken. God is fixing it. There's lots of good in it if you look, and you can become part of the solution. How often has the church just withdrawn from everything? Just absolutely hidden. We're going to cover that here in a minute. Oh, we've got to be sanctified. We've got to be set apart so we can't go near those people. Really? Who did Jesus hang out with? Some of those people? Let's take it a step further. What were some of you last year? That's right, those people. But God is in the business of not just repairing the world. He repairs lives. Our ministry sets out to repair one life at a time. We let somebody else run the giant farming combine and run over the fields, damaging half, bringing in half. We want to focus on one life at a time. We care about you. We care about the struggles that you fight with. We take joy in your successes. One of the happiest events in my day each week is when somebody shares with me something that happened that was good in their life. It's worth thinking about. Did you make anybody smile this week? In what way did you contribute to the world being a better place 
Or like that John Mayer song, are you just simply sitting back waiting for the world to change? See, I don't want to wait anymore. I want to do what God called us to do. Turn with me to Isaiah. We'll read a couple of scriptures in Isaiah on our way to the New Testament. See how I'm working you from left to right in the Bible? We'll walk through history. We'll be in Isaiah 12. Y'all are singing that song in your mind, huh? Waiting, waiting on the world to change. I got Randy Jackson's version in my mind. The little guy was singing it, and Randy did the female echo in a high falsetto. <laughs> All right, y'all in Isaiah 12? 12, look at verse 4. In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known among the nations what He has done, and proclaim that His name is exalted. Israel was looking forward to a day when all of the nations would see that God was among them, that He was working to repair the world, and His best evidence was found in Israel. That was the thought, right? If God is our God, if He goes with us into battle, and He knocks down the giants for us, if we step out into a river and as our foot touches the water, it splits before the presence of God among us, then the world will see us and they will have hope. They'll go, oh my goodness, there is no God except the God of Israel and they'll want to come to the God of Israel. Sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? It was God's plan. But read with me in Isaiah 27. Ah, 26. In Isaiah 26, 740 years before Jesus, Isaiah is coming to a conclusion that is painful. It's the 26th, or 26th chapter, 18th verse. Oh, we'll say uh, 17th verse. As a woman with child is about to give birth, rides and cries out in her pain. So we were in your presence, O Lord. We were with child, we writhed in pain, but we gave birth to the wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to the people of the world. Isaiah is broken hearted because he's realized that Israel got close. They got close and God's presence was with them and their purpose was to be a priestly nation showing the world how to be reconciled to God, how to fix the problems that were there. But they had a late-term miscarriage. Their goal was to give birth to the peoples of the world, meaning that those who were dwelling in death, those who only saw the world as broken and beyond help, were supposed to look at them and find life. But Isaiah said, we're, we're failing. We're not doing it. If there's any scripture in all of the Bible that the church should be able to relate to, it should be that. It should be that. Not because God's mad at us, not because we're bad people, but because so often we've been misdirected. We've been looking for the chance simply to go to heaven. We've been looking for the chance to be blessed in our finances. When the Bible is telling us to not look to go somewhere, but look to make heaven here. To look for the chance to extend heaven into someone's life. He said, well, how do you do that? I don't know. Maybe you help them put in their dishwasher. You ever had to put in one of those things? It's a blessing when somebody gives you a hand. Maybe when they're scared and they're sitting on the side of a hospital bed, you show up and offer words of comfort. Doesn't that make the world a little better place, at least for that one? These are acts of Takan Olam. 
There are ways in which we repair the world. Now you think about something as we begin to move forward. Is this not what Jesus' life was filled with? Where did Jesus simply stand and sermonize? When did He sit down with the German philosophers and write great treaties on the Christian faith? None of those things ever happened. Instead, everywhere He went, He healed the sick. He taught about the good news of God's reign, the kingdom of God on earth. And He helped people see the world in a different way. And twelve of them were stupid enough to believe that He could do anything. And they changed the world to the extent that if you write a check today, it'll be based on the date of that king's birth. They changed the world. We think, repair the world is too big a task. Where could I start? Start with the person sitting in front of you. I've been very blessed to be stubborn enough to learn to do some things that people find useful. I was not born knowing how to build anything or fix anything. But when I was born again in the kingdom, I was filled with a desire to find a practical way to help people. And having a car that wouldn't run, I learned how to fix one. Now God sent us Adam. Thank you, Adam. Adam's not always available, nor was I when Mandy needed us this week. I wonder when the single females in the church will have ten people that they could call that would help them and know that it would be fixed. See, that's repairing the world, saints. And not just in the body of Christ. That's where it starts. We we practice in here so that we can perform out there. It's easy to put a battery in a car for a single woman in the church that loves you already. What about the person who questions your motives while you're doing it? and all but spits in your face because they're so used to being damaged by the world. They're so used to somebody only trying to exploit them. That's where your real credit comes. It's true that Isaiah said that they had given birth to the wind, but that was not the end of the story. In the 27th chapter and 6th verse, he contains this promise. In the days to come, Jacob, which is another name for Israel, will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. When we're thinking about Israel filling all the world with fruit, number one, I want you to understand that the 39 books of the Old Testament are Israel's fruit. And not just the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New. The entire canon of Scripture came to you via Israel. A hundred percent of it. We honor our reformers who gave their lives to bring it to us in our language. But the first language it was ever written in was Hebrew, and those men were sawed in two and put in dungeons and killed with stones and all of those things just as well. Israel's fruit has filled the earth. The father of modern physics is Albert Einstein, a Jew. He said, but wait a minute, I don't recall him just being in love with the Lord. God put it in his people's hearts, some would even say genetically, to change the world. And he played his part. Sigmund Freud, father of psychology. Sigmund and I might not agree about a lot of things, but as a young man, he set out with a goal and a vision. He wanted to help people. And because the world was broken, he wanted to find ways to fix it. Everything that he did wasn't right. 
but his desire was godly and it was noble, at least in the beginning. Father of psychology was a Jew. You're going to cringe at the next one. Karl Marx is the father of communism. He was ethnically a Jew. And he said, well, golly, that was evil. He set out to change the world, and on paper it looked like a good idea. Everybody will be equal. We'll all distribute and share things and live in a communal way. That doesn't mean he's a good man. I'm not saying he is, nor am I saying any of the Jews I'm going to tell you about were good people. What I'm telling you is that in God's special distinctive people group, He put in their heart the desire to change the world. And it comes out. There are more engineers in Israel, men who build things, than in any country in the world per capita. The average Israeli produces 22 times the gross domestic product of any of their neighboring countries. And they have no oil to do it. God put in His people's heart a desire to invent, a desire to build, a desire to repair, to better the world in some way. Anybody in here watch TV? Yeah, just one. Elizabeth is the only person. You remember y'all were gonna, when I asked you questions, you were going to talk to me? Yeah. Does anybody in here watch TV? Yeah, yeah. yeah TV. Uh, in Louisiana, they call them a clicker. Yeah. In Texas, they call it a remote control. Invented by a Jew named Robert Adler. If you were being attacked and needed to shoot lots of bullets at once, you would want a machine gun, wouldn't you? First submachine gun ever invented by a Jew. We call it an Uzi because the man's name was Uzi Ogal. First incubator for a baby. Little premature baby born. First incubator ever made. Julius Hess, a Jew. Transistor. Nobody uses transistors. They're not in every electronic device ever made. Every electronic device ever made. Julius Lilienfeld. Blue jeans. For baby to get her blue jeans on. Levi Strauss, a Jew. Since the invention of the Nobel Prize for Physics, since that invention, 44 times it's been given to a Jewish man or woman. Now, I'm not here to just sing the praises of the Jewish race. I'm suggesting that we were grafted into something. We were grafted into a blessing that belongs to them, still belongs to them, will always belong to them. But the point was, the basis of our action, the basis of our faith, was supposed to be repairing the world. So how do we get into a position then where that's not the basis of our faith? Where the basis of our faith is, are we daring to believe in this thing? Right? Jesus was the Son of God. We good? Yes, Eric, we're good. We need you to believe He was raised from the dead. Are we good? Yes, we're good. All right, Darren's acknowledged that. Good to go, baby! Put him on the wall. High attendance Sunday. Got another one saved. (laughs) Saved means restored. Saved means Put back right, made whole. Saved and healed are the same words in Hebrew. Is Darren made whole because he said that? No. But if it is the heart's cry of him, and Jesus is his Lord, meaning his owner and controller, he's begun the process of being made whole. And for what purpose? To go make others whole. But what we do is get him to say that and say, Oh, now you will dance in glory! You'll be up there by the jukebox with the country singers in heaven by a fishing hole when you die. 
Can't wait to leave this old stinking world behind. Nothing could be further from the biblical concepts. Nothing. So how did we get there? Well, it just so happens that all of Jesus' followers were Jews originally, so they already had Tukhan Olam as their base operating system. They didn't experience a painful upgrade to Vista. It was a nice, stable operating system. I don't know, like XP Pro. And so they considered themselves sex within Judaism. They considered themselves a part of Judaism. In fact, the Scripture calls them part of that Nazarene sect. Other times it says, they're Jews who are followers of the way. They kept all of the same Jewish prayer life, same Jewish ritual, but now they believed that Jesus was the way in which they were supposed to walk. So what should God's repairing the world look like? It should look like what Jesus did, and they imitated Him. But in 70 A.D., their temple was knocked down. That didn't destroy the Christians, the, Christ, the Jews who would later become called Christians. They were taught that their body was the temple of God. Judaism had to begin to reinvent itself a little bit around that time, though. What do we do if we can't sacrifice? And they came to a right conclusion. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So they saw prayer and study of the Torah as the highest form of Judaism. But they were still under the yoke of Roman oppression. So now we have Jews who believe in Jesus who are worshiping outside of a temple in a form of Judaism, and we have Jews who don't believe in Jesus, worshiping God outside of Jesus. It's a problem, isn't it? But it was a family problem. How many of you know that a brother and a sister can be mad at each other every day, but when attacked by an outside force? My sister one time whipped eight boys at a swimming pool because they were picking on me. She didn't have any problem beating me up at home, but she didn't want anybody else doing it. That was her job alone. (laughs) So now we have a schism, a divide within Judaism. Those who follow Yeshua and those who don't, but all Jews. And something happens. In 132, a Jew named Simon Bar Kokhba, his name means Simon, the son of a star. Man, that's a nice name, huh? The son of a star. got proclaimed Messiah by Rabbi Akiva. And the reason Rabbi Akiva named him Messiah, and by the way, a Messiah, not the Messiah. Rabbi was not a stupid man. He knew that this person was not the Messiah, but he determined that he was a Messiah to get them out of the yoke of Roman oppression. They revolted against Rome a second time. And when that happened, Hadrian sent Sextus Julius Severus, all the way from Britain, thanks Debbie, all the way from Britain to Israel, with such an overwhelming force that they put down the second Jewish revolt. Now I want you to think about something before we get into that though. If you are both Jews, Casey's a Jew who believes in Yeshua, a, a, a Jew who still is Jewish in every way, but he says Yeshua, Jesus, is the way. And I say, no, I'm a Jew, but I think Casey's wrong. We're like denominations within Judaism. But now, not only is Rome in a war with us, I have to pick sides. Because part of my family says Bar Kokhba is the Messiah, and you side with us or you side with Rome. Now all of a sudden there's a deep schism in Judaism. Because 
Jews who believed in Jesus and could not follow Bar Kokhba as their Messiah were viewed as disloyal. In fact, when they saw Rome coming and surrounding the city, they heeded the words of Jesus and left the city. So now they're viewed as cowards. But what choice did they have? Bar Kokhba was not their Messiah, and they were trying to be obedient to their Messiah. You ought to be able to sympathize with both sides there. If you were a Jewish nationalist, wouldn't you be upset if somebody would not fight to, to defend your country? But if you were a Jewish believer in Yeshua at that time, what would you have done? Would you have gone out and fought under the banner of a man called the Messiah? By the way, Rabbi Akiva used Numbers 24 about a star coming out of Jacob as his pretext for calling this man the Messiah. That very scripture speaks about Jesus. So Hadrian sends his very best. His losses were so high in this battle that when he had to give the report to the Roman Senate, Hadrian had to go back to the Roman Senate and give his report. The standard greeting at the time was, I and the legions are well. And then you give the report. He couldn't muster it out of his mouth because they lost so many fighting these Jews. This was the beginning of an anti-Semitic movement that hated Jews worldwide. Hadrian, from that point forward, outlawed Jews from Israel. So picture this. You're a Jewish believer in Jesus. You're hated by your own people because you're disloyal. You're hated by the Roman world because you are a Jew. So suddenly now, now that the Jews have made it so easy for Christians, Gentiles, to come into their faith, suddenly they're hated by everybody. And what began to happen is churches that were full of Romans who had become Christians sprang up everywhere, but there was no love for the Jewish people. So we began to adopt Greek concepts rather than Hebrew concepts. Rather than going to ask a Jewish apostle, how should we view this? Rather than just looking at Jewish scripture and using that alone, we began to look to men that we called church fathers. Can I tell you? The church fathers in the second century were as screwed up as the church fathers today. You don't think that's true? Watch the news. Men that people call fathers do bad things all the time. It was no different in the second century. The fact that they were called church fathers didn't make them right. And you know what? They were all Greek. And the Greeks believed something. In their very core, when they were first raised, before they encountered Yeshua, the Jewish Christ, the first thing that they believed with this earth is tainted. It's bad. That is in the heart of all of the Greek religions. And you know what's worse than the earth? Your very flesh. That's what they thought. In fact, Paul was already dealing dealing with this before the Bar Kokhba revolt when he said, some people were saying, well, we got to live in this flesh anyway. I mean, it's all destined to perish. It's only our spirit that lives. The flesh is not important, so whatever we do in the flesh really doesn't matter. And they began teaching that it was okay to be sexually immoral. And he said, God will burn you and your body. <laughs> Wrote that in the letter of Corinthians. But this was Jewish, a rejection of Jewish thought. It was a Greek ideal, and it produced in the church an off-worldly concept. One day we're just leaving this old stinking world behind because the world's inherently evil and the only thing inherently good is your spirit was the thought. And it seems right, doesn't it? Except that is not at all what God said from the beginning. He said the earth was good and he put man on it to reshape it, to replenish it, to fix it. 
But without any Jews in the church, we were left to go our own way. Isn't that sad? But what about our great reformers? Our great reformers were products of their environment. Martin Luther was one time asked what heaven was like, and he described it as candied apples, uh, golden horses, and lollipops. That's not a joke. I love Martin Luther, but he also said the Jews should be herded into ghettos, their properties confiscated, their prayer books burned, and they should be murdered. He said that. I can't deny it. He did. I wish he didn't. Apparently, salt water and fresh water comes out of the same spigot sometimes. I guess Martin Luther was the only one that ever cursed or said something bad. I think he got confused because the whole world had abandoned something called Takan Olam. We're here in our very essence to repair the world. So turn with me to John 17. Do you have a few more minutes for your pastor? Truth is, that was the preamble. <laughs> John 17. Now, when I say this, let's be very clear. Eric's not Jewish. I eat pork as often as I possibly can. Uh, even when you see Jewish phrases or Jewish items in here, this is because the root out of the soil out of which Christianity has grown is Jewish. And when you want to get back to pure, authentic teachings of Jesus, they're always Jewish. Always. Never Greek. And yet all of our time in our New Testament studies, all of our pastor seminary time is all spent on Greek culture and Greek language. It's causing problems. It's causing problems because if you ask the average Christian on the street, what is God's plan for you? It's that I go to heaven. And I tell you, you cannot find that phrase anywhere in the Bible, although... You do go to heaven if you die. I'm not saying you don't. We're waiting for heaven to come this way and be set up on earth. Write this down just for fun. Okay? It's Revelation 11.15. Because I'm going to forget to tell you, but Revelation 11.15 says, Now the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God. It's after the seventh seal, guys. It's at the end. The goal is that the kingdom of the world be turned into God's kingdom. But I didn't want you to go there. I just wanted you to write it because you're supposed to be in John 17. In the first verse of John 17, it says, After Jesus said this, He looked towards heaven and prayed. But we're supposed to pray with our heads bowed, right? Aren't we? Isn't that how you were taught to pray? It's not how Jesus prayed. It's not how Jews prayed. It's not how Solomon prayed. How did Solomon pray? Hands stretched out, face turns toward heaven. And Jesus is a Christian, right? No. Jesus is a Jew. He's born in a Jewish household. He was raised as a Jew. So how do you think Jesus prayed? Well, it tells us. He turned his face towards heaven. What's the difference between turning your face towards heaven and bowing? What do you really think the difference is? Oh, teach their own tomato, tomato, right? Unless one has a connotation of, I'm so sinful and dirty, and the other has the connotation of, I was made to reflect your glory. See, even these subtle differences in what we've been taught affect the way that we act. I encourage you to raise your face towards heaven because you were made by God to reflect His glory. That's why the Jews pray the way they do. They saw themselves as distinct out of all the nations. 
I have been picked by God to fix what is broken. And so they could raise their chin towards heaven. And Paul says, their hands without wrath or malice, believing that God Himself could use them. So well, those Jews sure must have been self-righteous. No, I assure you, there's nobody that was more aware of their own sin. Their law taught it to them every day. So they saw themselves as sinning, yet used by God. How about that? You think the church might learn something from that? How many times have you shut up when you should have spoken up because you didn't feel worthy? How many times did you have an opportunity to do something good but think, but what will they think? Because they also saw me do something bad. The world's broken. It's our job to fix it. John 17, we're going to skip down to verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. (laughs) You see the witness of Christ everywhere, right? Everywhere you go, you see the full joy of Jesus in people. Dude, I don't even see a tenth of the joy of Jesus in people. The most resounding testimony about mankind, if you walk around the mall in traffic, anywhere you go is that people are generally pretty hacked off. People are mad most of the time. But they all claim to be Christians. Maybe we're missing something. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Here, the sense of the world is cosmos. It means the world system. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Did you hear that? My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. So Jesus has a chance to talk with the Father in earshot of people. And the people get to write it down. He actually says, I'm just saying this while I'm here for their benefit. Because Father, you and I are already on the same page. He says that in a little while. So he's saying this so that John can hear it and write it down. And Jesus' heartfelt desire, what He's praying and talking to the Father about, is, Lord, just leave this stinking earth behind. Snatch them all up to heaven. He says, my prayer specifically is not that they be taken out of the world, but that they be protected from the evil one. In other words, you guys are in hostile territory. There's something here that has to be subdued. And Jesus prayed that you would be protected from it but not removed from it. So why do Christians run and hide in the corner when somebody has a beer or a cigarette? What if somebody doesn't listen to the kind of music you do? Well, surely stay away because you need to be holy. Well, if you really believe what they're doing is wrong, what hope do they have if you hide from them? Well, they know where we're at. They can find us in the church. That's right. You've made your church so attractive they all want to go there, right? I mean, it's such a great place to be. Good place for your kids to sleep. See, there's something wrong. Something's wrong even with the idea of all of us are conditioned. We pray over our food. Lord, bless this food to the sanctity of our body, right? And the idea is God's got to make this food clean. The Bible says if it's eaten in thankfulness, it's already clean. Jews didn't pray to sanctify their food. They didn't. They prayed and thanked God before they ate, and they thanked God after they ate, and that was the more pronounced prayer. They thanked Him for filling their bellies. They weren't worried that they would get sick if they didn't. God made it. It was good. If you want to pray over Taco Bell, that's okay. I understand. (laughs) 
I understand. Pray before and after enduring. Enduring. Well, what about this come apart and be separate idea? They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Okay, so are they aliens? If what we're talking about is really off-world concepts, are they aliens? Are they literally the uh, little big-headed creatures with big eyes? So what does he mean when he says they're not of the world? They're not part of this broken part of the world. They're here to repair it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world for them. I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Sanctified is a word that means set apart for God's use. It has nothing to do with a geographical location. The church thinks of sanctify as Mandy and Michelle and Debbie are sinners, so Adam has to sit on the other side of the great divide so he can be holy. Sanctified in the Bible is you sit in the center of a crowd that is sinful, but you're different than that crowd. Uh, salt is just like everything else on your plate, right? No, why would you do it then? You put salt onto your plate because it changes what is there. A little bit of it changes flavor radically. I put too much on some uh, zucchini and we couldn't eat it. My prayer is not for them alone. Well, that's comforting. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. Who's that? Well, that's Bob Cook, that's Fred Hall, that's John Dang. Those who have believed through the message of the apostles. Well, why? I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why? Because we're all in the business of repairing the world. And the sooner that the world realizes that, the more they'll stop resisting it. But first, the church has to wake up and get to business. By the way, when he says in, that's a Greek word, and it's E-N. Easy to remember, huh? In. And it doesn't just mean in proximity. It means intimately familiar with. When Jesus says he's in the Father, he means he's intimately familiar with the Father. When it says we're in Jesus, it means intimately familiar with. And you know what Jesus prayed three times a day? Help me repair the, Lord, repair the world. And so did they. That was their goal. Matthew 5. Go there. We're running out of time and that's okay. I think you all are getting the concept, huh? Look at some familiar scriptures here. Matthew 5. You are the salt... 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. The purpose of salt is to make something salty. Yeah, how about that? Profound, isn't it? The purpose of salt is to make something taste like salt. Salt doesn't make salt taste like salt because it's already salt. You put salt on something else to make it taste like salt. Sitting next to the people you're sitting next to should not be to make them more Christian. They're already Christians. Where would you put a Christian if you wanted to evangelize the world? Somewhere where there weren't Christians. Right? Just like you put salt on something to make it salty. But follow through the statement. What happens when Christians lose their Christ-likeness? Well, they're not good for much. Just like salt wouldn't be. How about the next one? You are the light of the world. The city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp 
and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. See your what? Good deeds. You mean your profession of faith is not enough? How often do you even care anymore when somebody begins to tell you what they believe? I'm telling you, I start looking for a back way out of the room. If you live next to me long enough, I will see what you believe without you having to tell me. I'm not saying that you should never vocalize it. I'm saying that the vocalization should come after the deeds. If you were married to a spouse that slapped you in the face first thing every morning, but then said, I love you, how truthful would you think that statement was? The world will learn that we are here on Christ's behalf repairing it when our deeds show that. Our deeds. How about Matthew 13? They said about that little sham wow on TV that it would pick up 20 times its weight in water. I mean, this little thing, what a bargain, 1995. And he points out that a German made it. That's great, right? Because Germans are always smart, right? Pick up 20 times its weight in water. Did you know the Bible had a similar concept? The Bible speaks of the kingdom of God small enough to start in the heart of a child, but it will expand well beyond its container. In fact, it's almost like a catalyst for change. And in Matthew 13, you hear it said this way. 1331. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in a field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air can come and perch in its branches. Speaking of God putting His yoke of His rule in you, and when you have that, and when it happens, it affects the whole area of your life and everybody around you. Repairing the world. It starts with what you do each day. It starts in the small areas. Well, maybe I misunderstood the parable. It says he told them another one. Let's read that one. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. If leaven did not cause bread to rise, what would it be good for? That's likened unto us. These are Jewish people hearing the teaching of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. They already understood that they were here to repair the world, and he's reminding them. These words that I'm giving you are more than just words. They're spirit and they're life, and they're supposed to change you thoroughly and the world thoroughly. He goes on to explain the parable of the weeds, and I don't have time. But there's not just one force on the earth. It's not just one force working to bring forth a harvest of righteousness. He says that the devil sows evil ones into the field. People who are bent on destruction, who are slaves to their carnal passions, who only know how to take and hurt. I've been one of those. Some of you have too. I don't want to be anymore. When you're young, it's fun to tear things up. It's funny, the older you get, especially retired men, you are fascinated with fixing things. There's a maturing that happens. Early in life, all you can do is figure out how to be destructive. But somewhere, you find out that there's just not much pleasure in that. 
But there is something neat about taking something ugly and making it beautiful. Jesus called us to the latter. We're not called to stand on street corners and yell that somebody's going to hell. We're called to stand on street corners and give people water who are thirsty, to cut people's grass, to help somebody who has a flat tire beside the road. James 1.27 says, A pure and faultless religion is the kind that takes care of widows and orphans. Pure and faultless religion. You want to practice repairing the world? Take care of the people that God puts in your life. And you say, well, He hasn't put anybody in my life. Then your life is too pitifully small. Go out and meet somebody. The world is dying. They are hurting all around us. People are absolutely broken. You do not have to look hard at all for somebody to be nice to. Just to be nice to. With that idea that you're called to repair the world by loving people. Let's look at the Great Commission one more time. You can read it in Matthew 28. promise none of you will be late to Luby's today. Matthew 28, the scripture known as the Great Commission says, 28:18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jews were a distinctive people group, called specially by God, but called for the benefit of the nations. What is that like? You're a Christian. You're a distinctive person because... Christ is your Lord, but you're called to the peoples of the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to believe, obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am always with you even to the very end of the age. So how do you make disciples? How do you preach? By what you do, saints. How much noise are those fluorescent lights making? Not very much, but you can sure see their effect. They are shining everywhere. God didn't always call us to be loud speakers. He called us to let our light shine. How hard does salt have to work to be salt? It's just that. It's just salt. We don't have to work at being Christians. We just have to be true to the ideals that Jesus has put in us. And when you love people, it repairs the world. How about John 3.16? How about that one? For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. In light of Takan Olam, why did He send Him to the world? To fix it because it was broken. And whose follower are you? You're a follower of Jesus. You're supposed to be fixing the broken world. In Acts 1, records some words of Jesus that are not in the Gospels. He says, hey, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power. Power from on high. Dynamite power. He says, and when you receive it, you're going to be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you were looking at a map, that would be like here, then here, then here, and then as far out as you can possibly go. I'm asking you to do something, saints. I'm asking you to look beyond the borders of your living room. 
I'm asking you to walk into Walmart with a purpose. There are broken people here. Who can I make their life better? And I want to tell you a secret. I don't care whether you mention the name Jesus or not. Go love somebody. Go make the world a little better place. And you know what? That's like extending God's rule, which we call heaven, right into their life and they might like it and look for more of it. Then maybe the Scripture would be true. Be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you. When people are not asking us, maybe it's because they don't see enough of God's rule to see you as different or care. It's an amazing thing. You can go meet a stranger in a nursing home and ten minutes later feel like he's a best friend. You really can. You can go see somebody in a hospital just a few times and form a bond with them and their families. The world needs, needs somebody to love them. And if we're called by Christ's name and won't do it, well, what is salt if it loses its saltiness? I had planned to read you about the Good Samaritan, but you know the parable, so let me just ask you. Why did a priest and a Levite who had been trained to repair the world pass this guy by on the side of the road? They didn't see him as worth repairing. He's a Samaritan. He's not even worth fixing. He's just a godless dog. Maybe they just thought, well, it take too much of my time. i got places to go. I'm in the Lord's employ. I don't have time to do what the Lord would do. i got to go do what the church told me to do. Somebody told me one time to not stop and help a woman on the side of the road, broken down, because it was the devil trying to keep me out of church. I thought maybe he and the devil were sitting next to each other in his church. What kind of religion is pure and faultless? See, saints, it's not hard to excel in repairing the world. It's not. I got a little Hindu neighbor that would not be all that easy to love. But every time you stretch forth a little bit and show her some love, it's part of repairing the world. We need to look at people and see their lives worth repairing. More than that, rather than asking the question, what does this cost me? A Saturday. Oh, here's the new one. A Saturday away from my kids. Your kids were with you Saturday and they didn't like you any more than they do this Saturday. (laughs) What will this cost me if I help them? We need to ask, what will it cost him if I don't? Wonder how many people in the hospital will die this week without somebody holding their hand. How much theological training would that take to do? wonder how many people in a nursing home slip in and out of consciousness that don't think anybody in the world cares about them. You say, but they don't even know where they are. They don't even know my name. Well, I bet they know there's a human being sitting in front of them who seems to care about them. It's probably better they don't know your name. They might not like you if they knew who you were. See, it's not hard. It's really not hard. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus saved us to do the good works he called us to do. Good works he prepared in advance for us to do. Sometimes we think of those good works as preaching in this nation or playing this music or some grandiose event. What if the things that he called you to do were love the neighbors on your left and right? And if you live in an apartment, you got a bonus. People on top of you and bottom you too. What if that's what he did? So, but how do I love them and who is my neighbor? Well, do we really need to go through that again? Hadn't Jesus answered that? 
Your neighbor's anybody you encounter. Well, how do I love him? When they're wounded, you help them. When they're hungry, you feed them. When they need clothes, you give them clothes. A friend I made in the last few months said everybody deserves to have electricity, a roof over their head, and some groceries. Wow, I bet you could do that sometimes, huh? But I don't have unlimited resources. It's all right. God does. Why don't you use some of yours for him and see if he gives you some more? It's a little different than the gospel. Agreed, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 5 says that you are God's ambassador. I'm closing with this thought. He says you are God's ambassador making his appeal to the world to be reconciled. Another word for reconciled would be restored or repaired. What people need to know is that the broken parts of their lives can be fixed. And you're supposed to be God's hands and feet. You're supposed to help them fix it. If you say, be warm and well fed, I'll pray for you, and do nothing about their needs, what good is that? Now, this church is interested in service, and I know that. And I'm so thankful for it. We're going to go hand out flyers in a neighborhood. Not flyers to build a bigger church. We're going to hand out flyers so that next week when we cut their grass, they may associate the two events. Wow, somebody in Jesus' name did something nice for me. We're going to begin to become more community-oriented because I believe God wants to repair the world, not put butts in seats. We can do that on a bus and or a movie, anywhere He wanted. He wants to repair the world. Go stand to your feet. Here's another one. Takan Olam Bamukat Shaddai to perfect the world under God's sovereignty. Lots of people are out trying to make the world a better place. But if God's sovereignty is not the basis for it, they come up with good ideas like communism that turn out to be disastrous and enslaved people. I want to make the world a better place, but I'm not reducing the gospel to simply Oh, well, go do something nice for someone. God's sovereignty in your life has got to be the basis for everything. There are all kind of good organizations that do good things for people, but in the end, lead them right into a ditch. Not what we're talking about. We're talking about God having the reins of your life so that when you feel that unction from Him, that urging from Him, you'll go show kindness to the one at the lunch table nobody will sit with. Amen? Let's pray. But do me a favor. Right? You learned something today. I'll let you pray after today any way you want to pray. But today, tilt your chin back, close your eyes as if you were staring at heaven through your eyelids.